Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head-turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple. If you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. One of the things that Malcolm and Martin teach us is the joy of struggle. The joy of struggle. They absolutely talk about the bitter side, but they also talk about the beauty of struggle. That there's something unbelievably empowering in trying to struggle and resist against oppression. And there's a joy in trying to collectively raise consciousness. Hello, I'm Sean Elling, co-host of The Way Through. This summer, Sagal Samuel and I have been taking turns talking to spiritual leaders, philosophers, and occasionally historians who can help us put our biggest questions in a larger context and hopefully find something meaningful in this challenging moment. My guest today is Peniel Joseph, a historian at the University of Texas and the author of a fantastic new book called The Sword and the Shield. It's a dual biography of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., a lot of books have been written about these two men, but this book is different in that it's much more about the dynamic between Malcolm and Martin than it is about their individual stories. As you'll notice, this conversation is a little different from our previous episodes. This is not a meditation on a spiritual practice, and it isn't a deep dive into an old philosophical school like existentialism. Instead, this is an attempt to understand how these two towering figures defined and shaped the movement for racial equality in this country. In that sense, it's very much a conversation about the present told through the prism of the past, but it's also an exploration of the political philosophies of Malcolm X and MLK and why they're not nearly as antithetical as we're made to believe. In the end, as Joseph explains, Malcolm and Martin speak to this tension between reform and revolution, idealism and pragmatism. But the story also shows that the choice between these approaches isn't always so clear and sometimes isn't really a choice at all. Joseph and I talk about this tension and some of the myths around Malcolm X and MLK and what they stood for. We also discuss how their dueling legacies speak to this moment and what he thinks they would say or do today if they were still alive. There's a lot to chew on in this episode, and it really helped me contextualize this moment. Considering this is the last installment of The Way Through's eight-episode summer run, I found it a fitting capper, especially in light of what's gone on these last few weeks. I enjoy the hell out of this, and I hope you do too. So here's my conversation with Professor Peniel Joseph.
Professor Peniel Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sean. Very excited to be here. So why Malcolm X and why MLK and why now, right? I mean, obviously, this is a very timely book and a very timely subject, but I imagine the landscape looked a little different when you took this project on. So I, I just, I would love to start with, by just asking you what prompted you to, to write this book now? You know, I would say it's my mother. You know, I'm the proud son of Haitian immigrants. My mother's 81 years young, still living in Queens Village, New York, where I grew up. I grew up in Brooklyn and Queens. Uh, my mother was, she's a retired hospital worker, 1199 SEIU, which I later found out was Malcolm X's union. And so was Martin Luther King Jr.'s union. And it was Stokely Carmichael's union, Kwame Ture. And so I grew up in a very political household in New York in the 1980s. We had multiracial, multicultural friends, but it was an all-Black neighborhood in Queens. And my mother was a huge social justice advocate. Uh, she's a political activist, a feminist, a radical. I was on my first picket line in elementary school. So I've been in the space of what people are now calling anti-racism, but we call it social justice, Black power, racial justice, ever since I was born. Um, so I've been always mesmerized by these these issues. But my mother is my my social justice hero, somebody who put a line in the sand, moral and political, about what was right, what was wrong, about um, teaching me and my older brother, who's actually an ER doctor fighting COVID in Baltimore. Um, she put a line in the sand, a demarcating line about uh, just treating people with respect, treating people with dignity, uh, whoever they were, uh, but also telling us about Haitian history, Black history, and how important it was to study that history. So. In a lot of ways, the sword and the shield grows out of just a long-standing commitment um, to be in that space. So for me, being a scholar um, activist has always been a vocation. So it's always been a modus vivendi and not a modus operandi. We're obviously going to talk at length a little bit later about Black Lives Matter and you know all of the the, the protests following the murder of, of George Floyd. But before we get there, I'm just curious. Is there anything that you're seeing now or, or seeing since you finished writing the book that has changed how you think about the lives of either of these two men or their philosophies? I think it's been amplified. Absolutely. I think that for those of us like myself who are privileged to be in a space of uh, thinking and working and writing and teaching about social justice, but also being lifelong students about social justice and about American history, world history, Black history. Uh, social movements, feminism, um, learning more about LGBTQIA, um, learning more about so many different notions of intersectionality, not just individual identity, but um, the intersectionality of issues, whether it's the environment or healthcare or mass incarceration or unemployment, voting rights. I think that it's been amplified the importance of the 1960s and the importance of Malcolm X's notion of radical Black dignity, Dr. King's notion of radical Black citizenship. So when you see, when I've witnessed folks, you know, Black Lives Matter protests all around the country, the largest social movement uh, ever that we've seen, over 4,700 separate protests, so many white, um, not even allies, but white people coming in solidarity um, with this movement, seven to 26 million self-identified participants you really just see how on a granular level, this would not have been able to occur 
without the movements that uh, Malcolm and Martin represented, not so much as led, because people themselves lead these movements. But sometimes history converges and people decide there's going to be representatives, spokespersons. What's remarkable as well is that in this moment, so many of those representative leaders are Black women in a way that contrasts very significantly with the 1960s, not in terms of women's participation, but Black women's visibility. So we all know now, off the top of our heads, we can name Tamika Mallory. We can say Brittany Packnett. We can say Opal Tometi. We can say Alicia Garza, Patrice Kahn Colors. You can just keep rolling on. And so it's not just Angela Davis, and it's not just Kathleen Cleaver and Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. It's these young women who are leading the charge uh, for Black dignity and citizenship and connecting that, like King and Malcolm, to a larger concern of human rights. But what they teach us, and Malcolm and Martin tried to teach us too, is that you could get to the universal through the particular lens and struggle of Black folks and Brown folks, right? And I think the best of LBGTQIA activism does the same thing, where they say, you can see yourself in our struggle. And just because we are centering our struggle, we are not displacing you because you can see yourself in our struggle. And it's a it's very simple, but because of the way we live in a, a patriarchal, heteronormative, white supremacist society that's anti-non-able-bodied, that's anti-people who have mental health and emotional health issues, that's anti-the poor, that's anti those who are indigent and marginalized, we can't see ourselves in their struggle. And I think Martin and Malcolm at their best remind us, remind all of us, we can see ourselves in the struggle of anybody else. Your book is very much about debunking some of the two-dimensional myths around Malcolm and Martin. You know, Martin Luther King as this kind of safe, comfortable, insider type figure and and of course, Malcolm as the by any means necessary renegade. There's obviously some truth in those caricatures, but but what do they miss? I like that you said safe, Sean. So I'll start with Dr. King because Dr. King is anything but safe. I mean, boy, he is, you know, one of the pleasures of doing the research and writing the book was seeing and really being in awe of how bold uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was and how much love he had for political underdogs of all stripes. And so, you know, one of the things that people miss is that Dr. King is a revolutionary, somebody who is really leading the whole United States of America and the whole world towards this moral and political reckoning that accelerates during the last three years of his life. But What's also missed is the way in which Malcolm X, who is the boldest critic of white supremacy of his generation, really of the 20th century, becomes King's alter ego and absolutely impacts King's radicalism. King's ability to work with and dialogue with Black power icons and revolutionaries like Stokely Carmichael, later Kwame Ture. So when you I think the interesting part about doing this research and trying to write this book was I always imagined, what if you did a book or read a book 
or there was a book about King and Malcolm X that looked at each comparatively in their own time. So you get King in 1950, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, but you get Malcolm alongside. And when you look at their public careers for King, it's 1955 to 68, Malcolm 52 to 65, you see not just juxtapositions, but real convergences. And I, I always thought that would be fascinating. And I learned so much from, from just doing the research about both of these figures and, and their, their trials and tribulations, but also about the way in which they both thought about dignity and citizenship in such singular ways, but that over time overlapped. And they came to see you actually needed radical Black dignity, you needed radical Black citizenship, but they converge in saying this was a human rights movement. That's one of the things that is very interesting to me about this kind of dual history or dual biography that you're writing. When I used to do political theory, I was very interested in this eternal tension between idealism and pragmatism, between extremism and moderation, between reform and revolution. And one of the things that becomes clear in your book, and I hope becomes clear in this conversation, is that these are not really binaries. And when they're put that way, it's a false choice. And I think the lives of these two men and the ways in which they converge speak to that. Absolutely. I think that Malcolm X is a great example of somebody who, in a lot of ways, is a radical pragmatist. He's somebody who wants to get um, free of colonialism, free of anti-Black racism. And when he says, by any means necessary, people take that as a threat, but really it's in it's consonant with the Black freedom struggle because when we think about the Black freedom struggle as a multiple choice uh, test, the answer is always D, all of the above. <laughs> the answer is people want self-determination and liberal integration. Uh, the answer is that people want uh, protection from anti-racism but they also want the right to choose uh, what tactics and strategies they're gonna use. Some people are both self-defense advocates and advocates of nonviolence simultaneously. We had black women, black feminists join the Black Panthers and pushed back against the patriarchal and toxic masculinity that at times the Panthers embraced. So people hold competing thoughts in their own minds constantly. We all know this. Uh, we can love someone, but have doubts about them, <laughs> right? We, we, can, we can admire someone and envy them at the same time. So when we think about Malcolm and Martin, they are both revolutionaries, but along that evolution, at times they are very pragmatic. At times they are, they are moderates. One of the things I write about Malcolm is that Malcolm is Black America's prosecuting attorney, but he becomes a statesman by, by you know, and, and Dr. King is the defense attorney who becomes uh, this pillar of fire. He becomes this man on fire in the last uh, several years of his life, and he's prosecuting and castigating in a way that we never think about King. But he's still, he's still saying, this is all about love, and this is all about human rights. And this is all about building the beloved community. But this is a person who's now saying the halls of Congress are running wild with racism. And when you read this stuff and you see it and you're like, wow, this is not the Dr. King that 
I got in school. This gee whiz, who is this guy? Yeah, there's a lot more than that. I have a dream. I mean, that's actually one of the most interesting things in a lot of ways, maybe one of the most admirable things about Martin Luther King, that he's that he's actually quite a political radical, but his radicalism is cloaked in this kind of theory of moderate change, which I think speaks to his political genius in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I like the word you use, cloaked, Sean, because in a lot of ways, even the I have a dream speech is a radical speech. He starts that speech by saying, now is the time to make real the promise of democracy. And this is August 28th, 1963. He's speaking before a quarter of a million Americans, 90,000 of them are white. And in that speech, he says, today we come to cash a check, a check that has been stamped insufficient funds, but we refuse to believe that the great vaults of opportunity in America are bankrupt. And so throughout that speech, he talks about racial slavery. One of the things I argue is that both Malcolm and Martin had their own 1619 project. You know, my, 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 uh, my, my, my friend, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has won a Pulitzer Prize heading this, this uh, monumental uh, multimedia project that the New York Times did on racial slavery from Jamestown to the present that is now being taught in all kinds of schools, that the right wing is attacking, but that really shows us racial slavery, the caste system it's set up, and how it's connected to the way in which institutions such as healthcare and mass incarceration and housing and public schools are conceived in the United States, and how it sets up supply chains of power and privilege for whites and supply chains of grief and misery for Blacks. Martin and Malcolm both understood that. And Malcolm, of course, talks about house Negroes versus field Negroes, but King constantly talks about racial slavery as well. And one of the things I document throughout is how they're both leading these seminars about racial slavery and why racial slavery, it's so important for the United States to have a reckoning about racial slavery. So sometimes we call them public intellectuals, but I think they they deserve something more when you produce that kind of consciousness among really millions of people. Do you think that in part because of the way Martin couched his radicalism, do you think a lot of people have, people who don't share his vision have exploited it or co-opted it in ways that betray it? I'd say all three. I think the exploitation, the co-optation, the betrayal is there. And I think the reason that occurred was it was really civil rights activists after Dr. King was assassinated had a choice. They wanted to institutionalize his memory. And when we think about that, Dr. King is assassinated Thursday, April 4th at 6 p.m. Memphis time, 1968. And the whole country is at a crossroads. We can choose the beloved community. This is just two months after the Kerner Commission report is published. That commission is a bestseller, sells over 650,000 copies that year. And that commission says that the nation is turning into two separate nations, white, black, separate, unequal, hostile. That the ghetto has been created and is a creation of white people and white supremacy and white politicians. And the only way out of the racial injustice maelstrom of the 1960s is for us to have a massive investment in Black communities and racial desegregation. And instead, we choose law and order. 
And so when we think about what activists, really led by Coretta Scott King and people like Vincent Harding, people who were very close to Dr. King, um, what they had a choice of was how do we institutionalize the memory of this activist and in so doing institutionalize the memory of the civil rights movement, that struggle. And they successfully did so. And when we think about it from our time period, they did it in 15 years. From the day of his death, it took about 15 years and six months for President Ronald Reagan to sign a Martin Luther King Jr. federal holiday into law. That's extraordinary. That absolutely could not happen now. Reagan was not a friend of the Black freedom struggle. He was not a friend of the Black Panthers. He was not a friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He's forced. Dr. Dr. King's holiday, Reagan is compelled to sign that because what the movement successfully does is this, and this is the choice that you're talking about. The movement successfully convinces enough white politicians that Dr. King's legacy is an example of the beauty of American exceptionalism. That's the choice. And so sometimes people say, well, what happened to King's legacy? That was the choice. The only way to get King enshrined in the memory of Americans and American nation state and American democracy was to say he exemplifies why we are so special. And in this sense, when we think about that, Lyndon Johnson said and did the same thing after Dr. King won the Nobel Peace Prize. After King won the Nobel Prize, Johnson sends King a memo dictated from Air Force One where he congratulates him, but he says, this is a reflection about us. This is not just about you. This is about America and how we are doing so well. Thank you for reminding us how fantastic we are. Exactly. And so that's why King's legacy is the legacy we have now, because the only way we got it was not to say that, look, we're going to use him to understand the crucible of race in America and how our original sin of racial slavery continues up into the present. And we had this, this prophet in the United States of America. We had many prophets at the time, but this singular prophet who brought us at times closer to the ideals that we have espoused historically. We didn't want to do that. And so we are left with a king who's sort of this uh, paper saint instead of a king who forces us all to wrestle with issues of uh, economic exploitation, of anti-Black racism, anti-immigration, anti-Muslim, our homophobia and our assaults against trans and queer and lesbians, uh, the way in which neoliberalism privatizes, commodifies, exploits not just public space and public treasure for uh, private wealth, but also it exploits and commodifies human beings in the service of basically saying that the the whole point of America um, is profit. And when we think about Dr. King, he said there were three evils facing the United States by 1967, 68, and the world. He said they were militarism, materialism, and racism. He said, these are the triple threats facing humanity. And what's extraordinary about King, and this is why I think King is so important, 
is that King says it's going to be a bitter but beautiful struggle, but we can transform these things. So King always has this underlying hope, even as he is in tears when he's in Mark's Mississippi uh, speaking to hundreds of poor African-Americans and mothers are telling him that they don't have food for their children. They don't have blankets in the cold. They don't have shoes for the children. He's in tears. Andy Young and Ralph Abernathy are watching him, and King is in tears. And King has always spoken to poor people, and this is 1968, but he's in tears. And what King says, and he's echoing Malcolm X here, King says, the way you're all living in Marks, Mississippi is a crime. And we are going to occupy Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, until this ends. When you see that, you just say, I mean, you have tears in your eyes. And you say, this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. And King gives them a history lesson saying, you have no money and everyone's telling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. King tells them about the Homestead Act and how European immigrants and settlers got millions of free acres of land from the government, and Black people didn't get the 40 acres and a mule, yet everyone's telling them in 1968 to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. This is Martin Luther King Jr. So when you see this figure, you see such a radical, prophetic figure. No more meetings with the President of the United States. No more Nobel Prizes. No more Time Man of the Year. This is this revolutionary figure who's going to use nonviolence to alter power relations, not just in the United States, but between the global North and the South. How can you not be impressed by that and try to try to yourself wrestle with that? Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head-turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple. If you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I want to talk a little bit about the dynamic between these two men as a way of working our way up to how their visions speak to this moment. And the relationship between these two is very complicated and constantly evolving. When I was preparing for this conversation and reading your book, I went back and watched some old interviews with Malcolm X. And he says some pretty harsh things. He, when talking about Martin Luther King, I just want to quote a couple here. Uh, at one point, he, he calls Mal, uh, Martin Luther King a religious Uncle Tom. He says he's, quote, subsidized by the white man to keep black people 
defenseless. Those are strong words, man. It was pretty ugly in the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think it, this is an important time to talk about what is what are Malcolm's and Martin's origins. So I'll start with Malcolm. Malcolm is born uh, on May 19th, 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska, to two Black activists, uh, Louise and Earl Little. His mother's from the Caribbean, from Grenada. Uh, his father's from Georgia. And when we think about Malcolm X, Malcolm X's parents are Garveyites. And Garvey, Marcus Garvey is the Black nationalist, revolutionary Pan-Africanist who, who organizes the Universal Negro Improvement Association, uh, which is the largest mass Black uh, freedom movement in, in really world history. Three to five million people are part of the Garvey movement, not just in the United States, but Canada, South America, Latin America, Africa, and the Caribbean. And so when we think about Garvey, Garvey is the person who's the framework for things that come after, including the Nation of Islam, including Malcolm X, including so many different efforts for Black people to say that um, Black is beautiful, Black pride, Essence Magazine, FUBU, for us, by us. That's Marcus Garvey. We have to always remember that. And so Malcolm is coming from that tradition, but it's also a tradition of racial trauma. His father is murdered by white supremacists when he's six years old in Lansing, Michigan. His mother is institutionalized in a psychiatric hospital for most of his adult life. Malcolm X, Malcolm Little, is a foster child until he moves to Boston at the age of 15. He's over six feet tall at the age of 15. He moves to Boston to live with his half-sister, Ella Mae Collins. And for the next six years, Malcolm is uh, operating at the lower frequencies of Black life in Roxbury, Boston, and in Harlem, selling marijuana. He's connected to all kinds of illegal activities. He's at times working as a day laborer. He's working as a, uh, as a cook. He's working as a Pullman car porter, finally arrested in 1946, and is going to spend 76 months in prison for theft, being part of an interracial theft ring uh, in Massachusetts. And so when we think about Malcolm X, while Malcolm is in prison, Martin Luther King Jr., who was born January 15, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia, he's a young Black prince. He's the son of one of the most important preachers and Black families uh, in Georgia, uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church. Really, Mal uh, Martin King's father is coming from sharecroppers. Martin King's mother is coming from Black people who were absolutely very successful in entrepreneurs and preachers. And so that's how he grows up. He goes to Morehouse College at 15. So when he is um, in his sophomore year at Morehouse College, Malcolm, who's three and a half years older, is being called Satan uh, because he was Detroit Red, but they're calling him Satan because of his attitude in prison, right? So these are two African-American political leaders whose understanding of American democracy, whose understanding of race is shaped by their own experiences. Malcolm in prison joins the Nation of Islam, has his epiphany in prison, and really uh, becomes even more than just um, uh, a political activist. He becomes an intellectual in, in prison, a scholar in prison, um, and uses that time to hone debate skills, to read about religion, African history, African-American history, Du Bois, the whole, the whole range of the Black freedom struggle. King is getting this under the tutelage of people like Benjamin Mays, the president of uh, Morehouse College, which was the best Black school 
all-boys school for men in the 1940s and still is Morehouse. So when we think about when we think about King, King's vision of American democracy, even as he imbibes, he's reading Gandhi, he's reading Howard Thurman, he's reading uh, Tillich, he's reading all these different people, uh, uh, Reinhold uh, Niebuhr, he's reading philosophers, he's reading Marx. His understanding of black uh, and racial oppression is at the abstract, even though he's experienced some racism. And there's a great anecdote in there about how both Malcolm and Martin reacted to Gone with the Wind. You know, uh, Dr. King was 10 when Gone with the Wind premieres in Atlanta, and he's aghast because Daddy King and folks have told him how racist that film is. Malcolm sees it at 14 in Mason, Mason, Michigan. And Malcolm recounts that he wanted to crawl under the rug when he says Butterfly McQueen got into her act. And that is the Black actress who plays Prissy in the 1939 film classic, in quotes, who's repeatedly and at times viciously assaulted and smacked in the face by Vivian Lee's Scarlett O'Hara. So Malcolm Little, at 14, knew something was wrong there. But they come to the African-American freedom struggle from vastly different perspectives. So by the time Malcolm finds out about King, they both get each other wrong. And I say that. King uh, finds out about Malcolm through the hate that hate produced and thinks Malcolm is just a Black supremacist. Malcolm, who really is um, somebody who's in the process of becoming. So there are, there are blinders that Malcolm has. The Nation of Islam is trying to talk about this patriarchal resumption of authority. Nation of Islam says Black women and children are our most important property, right, in defense of Black lives. So there's these blinders. So when Malcolm sees this Black preacher in Jet Magazine, who's the Baltimore Washington Afro-Americans Man of the Year in 1957. When he sees and hears all this stuff, who's talking about nonviolence, he's saying that this is a creature and a tool of white people. And he's wrong there. Martin King is coming out of the Black social gospel tradition. He's not coming out of a white tradition, even as he at times is part of an integrated theological uh, movement. He's not coming. He's not a creation of white people, but he's absolutely the creation of the Black bourgeoisie. Absolutely. One important thing they did agree on is that America had two systems of violence, and this is something you write about in the book, right? White violence against black bodies was was necessary, legal, justified. Black violence, even in defense of black dignity, was criminal, dangerous, subversive. And it's awfully revealing that all these years later, despite all the progress that's been made, we're still wrestling, we're still having this conversation today. Yeah, they their notion of violence, and they really both have meditations on violence and democracy, uh, but Malcolm absolutely preaches this idea of self-defense and this idea that Black people have a right to defend their bodies. I think one of the mythologies about Malcolm X is that he's somehow preaching guerrilla warfare against white people, and he's preaching race war. Even though at times he predicts race war, he's, his predictions are based on anti-Black violence. They're actually based on white racial violence that is coming both from ordinary white citizens, but also from law enforcement and state-sanctioned violence against Black communities. So Malcolm understood about Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the racial pogroms that had happened. His family had been victims 
of one such act of violence that does not get cast into the pantheon of history, like the massacres of Black towns in the late 19th and early 20th century. But Earl Little had been um, viciously murdered. And so when we think about Malcolm, Malcolm's notion of violence is that Black people absolutely have the right to defend themselves. And he's very critical of King for putting Black people in harm's way in Birmingham, Alabama, for putting Black people in, harm way, in harm's way where German shepherds are attacking them. Malcolm famously says that Black people have the right to defend themselves and kill two-legged or four-legged dogs that are attacking them, right? Because Malcolm, and it, this is one of the interesting things about Malcolm with violence too, is that Malcolm constantly leaves interviewers and debaters silent when he says that he's not against racial integration. Because they say, well, what do you mean? The Nation of Islam, racial separatism, what do you mean? He says that if we didn't have to march, if we didn't have to protest, if we didn't have to sue for racial integration, I'd be fine with it. And he also adds that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which one, end racial slavery, provide birthright citizenship, and then Black male suffrage that's expanded by 1920 to include women, means that the protest and the sit-ins should be moot. No one could say anything. Dr. Kenneth Clark interviews him in 1963. Once he says those things, everybody is silent because he's right. He's actually right. There was no need to, to w- without white supremacy being sort of this foundational part of the United States, there was really no need to have some kind of civil rights movement. Those things had already been decided. And racial integration had already been decided, right? The Brown decision after 1954 means that there should be no more protest about racially integrating schools. But there are. And Malcolm is saying, if you live in that kind of society, you should choose separation. And separation means that Black people themselves are deciding what kind of lives they want to live. And he says separation is different from segregation because it's Black people realizing that the United States is what Dr. King said was a sick society, sick with the cancer of racism. And I'll say in MLK's defense, and I think Malcolm at one point called him soft. And that seems deeply unfair. To, to put your body on the line without retaliating takes enormous will and courage. And Martin Luther King I, was very quick to draw a distinction between non-resistance and non-violent resistance, that these are very different things. Absolutely. I think that King, I think Malcolm was wrong. I think Malcolm was absolutely wrong. Uh, when it comes to the idea of King being soft or nonviolent demonstrations being soft. King has a great speech in Los Angeles in May of 1963, where Sammy Davis, and there's 35,000 people there, and Sammy Davis comes uh, in there and it's, uh, he, he donates $20,000 right on the spot. $20,000 in 1963, amazing, right on the spot. But King never mentions Malcolm, but is speaking. He's directly repudiating Malcolm's comments about Birmingham. He says, there's nothing soft about nonviolence. There's nothing soft about putting your body on the line. There's nothing soft about facing down this kind of racial oppression and this kind of immorality with the only defense that we have. And so I think Malcolm was wrong about that. And I think over time, Malcolm comes to realize he's wrong about that. I think in 1964, when he apologizes to civil rights activists, including King, publicly, 
um, implicitly in there is an understanding that he had been wrong. And I think they had been wrong about him, but absolutely, I think nonviolence and putting your body on the line and the civil disobedience that King was leading was absolutely right. But I also think that Malcolm was right that this kind of moral suasion wasn't going to be enough, that you needed political power. You were going to actually have to coerce and force these institutions into doing the right thing. And that required radical Black dignity, and it required a different face. It it required um, a different approach. And they come to realize you need both approaches. You know, and I think that's been the beauty of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think the beauty of BLM is that you realize you need the political sword and shield simultaneously. The title of your book implies that that Malcolm needed Martin and Martin needed Malcolm. The relationship never became deeply personal. They were never that close. But but their political visions did start to align, as you were just alluding to. What values or, or, or principles or policies did they converge on later in their lives? You know, I think that, one, just as individuals, they have... They, they, they each have personal sincerity, uh, political integrity, and, and this unapologetic love for Black people, which is really important. I think they both love and admire poor Black people, what France Fanon is called the wretched of the earth, people who've been incarcerated. You know, King could sleep on the floor of shotgun shacks. Malcolm um, always uh, remembered his time in prison and tried to help those who were incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. Um, I think they're going to agree on this idea of dignity and citizenship over time. Malcolm's going to come to agree, and you see it in the ballot or the bullet speech of 1964, that democratic institutions do have to change and be transformed. He doesn't agree that white elected officials somehow are going to be part of this coalition. He believes that Black people themselves should vote, and Black people themselves should hold whoever they elect accountable. And he says as much in 1964. So it's very interesting that Malcolm, in that that speech, which becomes really one of his most famous speeches, The Ballad of the Bullet, it shows a way out of racial oppression that's not necessarily going to have to be violent. And this is in contrast to one of his most famous speeches in November of 1963, Message to the Grassroots. Because that speech really makes a different argument, makes the argument that you know, he says at one point in that speech in Detroit um, at the Grassroots Leadership Conference, he says that, uh, uh, you know, you, you never heard of a revolution where people are singing because they're too busy swinging. And he talks about anti-colonialism. He talks about all the revolutions that have ever happened historically require bloodshed and how the Kennedy administration, along with King and civil rights leaders, are trying to divert a revolution into a reform movement. And I would say that speech is very, very important. I think there's there's many things that Malcolm gets right in that speech. Um, there's things that, that obviously uh, uh, I would disagree with. But when we think about by 64, you could see the ballot or the bullet is Malcolm's moment of saying, well, we actually need citizenship and dignity at the same time. What's well, interesting, I, there was a speech that Malcolm gave in Selma in 1965 at the church down there, I think while MLK was actually in, in jail. And he told Coretta Scott King that, and I have a quote here, 
that he, he was sorry he wasn't able to see Martin and that he, quote, thought if white people understood what the alternative was, they would be willing to listen to Dr. King. And I found that very interesting because that's, it, it's, it speaks to the fact that even Malcolm understood himself to be part of this dialectic between reform and revolution. Or he understood, in your words, he understood himself as the sword to Martin's shield. Yeah, he did. And, and you know, he, he, what's interesting about Malcolm in 64, he's talking to Robert Penn Warren, uh, the very famous Pulitzer Prize winning journalist uh, for all the King's men. And he really takes Warren aback when he says that me and King have the same goals. And Warren's saying, well, what do you mean? And he says, our goals are human dignity. Um, we have different tactics, but we have the same goals. Um, that year, both Malcolm and Martin support uh, a massive school boycott against desegregation in New York City schools. 450,000 students uh, stay out of schools. And there's one headline that says Malcolm X now seeking freedom like King, but faster. Right? And so that's one journalist who got it. Um, and then, of course, uh, they meet on March 26, 1964, at the Senate building. While the Senate is filibustering the Civil Rights Act, they meet. And that's where we have the very famous picture. One picture is them uh, smiling and shaking hands uh, with each other. That's going to be plastered globally. Um, and, you know, they're going to make plans to meet again. That second meeting doesn't happen. But Malcolm is friends with King's personal attorney, Clarence Jones. Um, and they he meets with Clarence Jones at the at the house of uh, Sidney Poitier's first wife, Juanita Poitier, um, in 1964. And I think what, one of the interesting things I found while doing research was that Malcolm actually was in the audience sitting next to Andy Young on December 17th, 1964, when Dr. King gave um, a speech uh, after winning the Nobel Peace Prize at the 369th Armory in Harlem. And there's over 8,000 people there New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller is there and stand, sitting right up front is Malcolm X listening to the entire speech of, Mal of Martin Luther King Jr. And he talks about that speech um, a few days later and praises King, right? And uh, um, around that time, Malcolm hosts Fannie Lou Hamer uh, at his Organization of Afro-American Unity at the Audubon for one of his, his uh, Black Power rallies. And then, of course, in February, he goes to Selma. So you could see the convergence between them throughout 1964, but I would argue even earlier uh, in, the course, in the course of their political careers. Well, you mentioned this earlier, obviously, that both of these men kind of developed their political consciousness and their styles through their religious institutions, Nation of Islam in the case of Malcolm and, and the African-American church in the case of Martin. Could they have become who and what they were without those religious experiences? No, I think they're, they are very much um, men of faith and faith leaders. And I think throughout, I try to, in The Sword and the Shield, show and illustrate and acknowledge that. They just are faith leaders who have um, secular pulpits and secular platforms, but they are deep men of faith. Malcolm is always a Muslim, even though he becomes an Orthodox Muslim on the Hajj uh, in, in April and May of 1964. King is a Christian. I would argue that Christianity influences Malcolm as well because his father had been an itinerant preacher. So Malcolm is a Muslim and a believer in Islam whose rhetorical style certainly is still rooted in a combination of the Black church and 
Harlem street speakers, because that's its own tradition. When we think about Hubert Harrison, when we think about uh, Queen Mother Audley Moore, uh, when we think about um, uh, Marcus Garvey and A. Philip Randolph, you know, the 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 Black Bookstore by uh, Louis Michaud's um, Pan-African Bookstore that Malcolm uh, would speak right in front of, um, right on 125th Street. And so when we think about you know, Malcolm X as a spiritual figure and faith leader, it's important for us to understand that he believes that Islam can be something that leads to racial rapprochement. And he says so. When people say, um, after the Hajj, when he sends all these telegrams telling people that he's basically had an epiphany in the Hajj, because Malcolm understands the importance of narrative power. He had met white Muslims in 1959. So he already knew there were white Muslims. And when we say white Muslims, yes, white Muslims, they might be from the Middle East or they might be from Europe, but they're on the Hajj. Um, Islam, just like Christianity, has people from all colors and backgrounds. So he knew white people were Muslims, but he sets up a narrative that now he understands, he gets it. And that if white people are sincere, and especially those who are of the faith, they could be part of racial rapprochement. King is a Christian who believes in the black social gospel. And that Black social gospel tradition is a tradition that makes an argument that when we think about our Christian beliefs, it's not about transform transformation only happening when we get to heaven. It says that the whole point of the Bible, Old and New Testament, is to tackle and combat the ills and the evils that we see right here on earth. Black social gospel is intrinsically anti-racist. So King has imbibed that. And so when we think about King and the social gospel, King is a preacher who's interested in using faith to secure racial and economic justice. Over time, he becomes somebody who's interested in using faith to end war, to end poverty, to end racism, and to end any kind of inequality and violence towards any living human being. And King calls the planet the world house. He says, we are all interconnected um, we're all bound in 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 the single garment of of mutual destiny. So their faith is incredibly important. The movement for racial justice today inters intersects with the legacies of these two leaders in I think pretty obvious ways. You have the large scale acts of civil disobedience, very much echo Martin and some of the more defiant rejections of systemic racism echo Malcolm. If they were alive today, I'm curious what you think they would say. And maybe more importantly, what do you think they would do? You know, I think they would have a lot to learn from these current movements, especially the intersexual aspects of identity in terms of uh, race, class, gender, um, sexuality, um, and how that has been so signal to these movements in, in really beautiful ways where you see Black Trans Lives Matter rallies with tens of thousands of people in Brooklyn just this spring. I think that they would both be supportive of the BLM movement and be trying to work at it in different ways. When we look at Malcolm, Malcolm was really interested in the global stage. He was interested in setting up coalitions and alliances in Africa, the Middle East. He's at Oxford University in one of his last speeches where 
very famously, he's um, he's actually taking the Barry Goldwater side for different reasons of extremism and defense of liberty is no vice. And he's saying at the end of that speech, he's willing to get together with anyone, no matter what color, who wants to change the miserable condition on the face of this earth. So I think Malcolm would really be interested in these global demonstrations, be interested in how can we transform Africa and the Middle East and poverty globally in the context of these Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And I think King would be doing what um, he did in 1968. King was trying to lead a multiracial army of the poor. When we think about the Poor People's Campaign, alongside of Marion Wright Edelman, uh, the head of the Children's Defense Fund. He was uh, getting together with Native American and indigenous, Latinx, farm workers, um, whites from Appalachia and others, other places alongside of Black people to get what we now call a universal basic income, but it's a guaranteed income, guaranteed employment. King argued for guaranteed health care, and he talked about food justice and environmental health care because he was in the Mississippi Delta and the Alabama Black Belt. And he, he saw what farm workers were experiencing in New Mexico and California and other places. And so he was interested in multi-layered. I always say that both of them were interested in intersectional justice vis-a-vis issues. And now we have both, both issues and people and bodies. And when we think about where they would be, they'd be doing the whole notion of radical Black citizenship and dignity, but at the global scale. King, absolutely interested in how do we change democratic institutions from within? And I think Malcolm, really, how do we pressure uh, American imperialism? How do we pressure American uh, monopoly capitalists? How do we pressure uh, uh the, the the oligarchs in this society and the corporations and those who set up disparate power relations using global pressure, using global solidarity. That's what Malcolm tried to do. And I would add that it's both Africa, the Middle East, the third world, but Europe. Malcolm X was incredibly popular in Europe. You know, he was at the the mutualité in France. He was he was he was in uh you know Oxford and he was in even Birmingham and Smethwick. Uh, besides London. So when we think about Malcolm X and who he who who he is, he wanted to use his status as a statesman. And remember, Malcolm had an office at the United Nations. Uh, Malcolm met with Fidel Castro Castro in Harlem in September of 1960. Really remarkable and amazing. So he was always a statesman. He always wanted to utilize based on what he had seen in 1955 at the Bandung Conference, the Bandung Conference in Indonesia, which was the non-aligned conference, which brought together representatives of 29 countries uh, whose populations exceeded over a billion to do this third world non-aligned movement. They, they, They established themselves as an independent bloc away from Soviet-styled socialism or American-style capitalism because they were interested in indigenous self-determination. There's a point you make in the book that I think speaks to the indispensability of Malcolm. You say that he inspired Black people, in your words, to love themselves and to take that that pain and trauma and transform it into a call to action or, or into a motive force. And he wasn't the first to do that, but maybe he was the most visible person to kind of stand up and and profoundly and loudly say, no, no, this ends, and this ends right now. And 
there's an element of consciousness raising there that is hard to describe or measure, but it seems indispensable as a precondition for a real mass movement. Absolutely. Malcolm, I always say he taught uh, Negroes how to be Black and to embrace Africa, which is no small feat, you know? And there's always been a history of people trying to do that. But in the modern era, the person who's the most effective, the person who gives an exemplar of, of Black dignity in action is going to be Malcolm X. And I think uh, he does that through his own example and the fact that even when he's very critical of Black communities, um, he's saying it out of love, right? So it's Malcolm who's saying Black people need to understand about racial slavery because we have to remember even up until this day, which is why when we think about these things like the 1619 Project and a contemporary discussions of slavery and trying to teach it is so important. Black people historically were, were taught to be ashamed of slavery. They were taught to, to, to not want to talk about that, to not want to dive into that. And Malcolm is the person who's telling us that we not only should not be ashamed of slavery, we should understand that the deprivation, the degradation, the dehumanization we're experiencing now is directly connected to slavery, but we also had a history before racial slavery, which is why Malcolm is so focused, laser-like, on, Af on Africa. Malcolm is an activist who is has pride in Africa, who wants to learn from Africans instead of the other way around, where Black folks sometimes feel that they have something, they're going to be the teachers. And he's saying, no, he wants to learn from Africans. So when we think about um, Malcolm X, it's very, very important uh, for us to understand that he, he, this idea of dignity, he loves Black people in a way that um, comes across tangibly uh, to the Black community and in a way that becomes this, this, uh, this basis for political action, this basis for political consciousness. So there would be no Black power movement without Malcolm X. The, the reason why you have Angela Davis and Stokely Carmichael and Black student unions and Black studies movements and programs, the reason why you have James Brown saying, I'm Black and I'm proud, the reason why you're going to get Essence magazine, the reason why you're going to get these cultural affirmations and Kwanzaa, right, celebrations of Blackness. Is because of Malcolm X. That so Malcolm. Sometimes people say, "Well, what's his policy legacy?" You know, give me his. Was there a civil rights act? Like, what did he do? <laughs> he to say, well, he he did even more than that. What he does is provide people the ballast to investigate their own identity and to understand that one that history is very complicated. It's very multi-layered, but they that their lives matter. That they have dignity. Their ancestors mattered. That there was value in their, their lives that goes beyond being an American, that goes beyond being part of the richest nation state in the history of the world, but that is intrinsic to just who they are and being connected to Africa and being connected to these different ethnic groups. That's Malcolm X. And what's interesting is that Dr. King takes up the banner after he's assassinated. And so the, the, what's interesting about this story and the twists and turns, after Malcolm X, the boldest critic of white supremacy is assassinated, certainly right alongside of Kwame Torre, Stokely Carmichael. But Dr. King is the person who, like a man on fire, starts talking about Black beauty and self-determination. And so when you read this and you see this, it's, I mean, it, it makes me smile because it's extraordinary. And again, it's 
it, it gives me huge admiration for King because once when we think about King and Malcolm, if they were playing good cop, bad cop, once the bad cop is assassinated, the person who takes on the role, people think it's going to be Stokely Carmichael. It's not. The bad cop of the late 60s is <laughs> Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which is why, and I want to say this to everybody, there's no more White House visits. The only person who does not come to Dr. King's funeral is the president of the United States. And they had once been friends because Dr. King says the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He says this is a moral illegal, unethical war that is destroying the great society. And if no one's willing to speak truth to power, I will. One, one last anecdote. Whitney Young, the head of the Urban League, tells Dr. King after King's anti-Vietnam War speech at the Riverside Church in New York that it was the wrong thing to do to fuse civil rights and Vietnam. Dr. King tells Whitney Young, he says, Whitney, that may get you a foundation grant, but it won't get you into the kingdom of heaven. Well, everything you just said there captures kind of wonderful complexity of this relationship. Because on the one hand, right, Malcolm's sword is a means to mobilizing black consciousness. And Martin's shield is a means of capturing the, the centers of American power and forcing it to bend to the demands of justice and to recognize black citizenship. But in the end, it's Martin holding the sword and the shield. And somehow that's how it should be and, and, and how it was always going to be. Yes. And, you know, they really both held it because King holds it at the end. And Malcolm, by 64, is taking that shield that I think he's learned from King. And he's trying to bring that diplomatic shield both within the United States and the domestic, domestic sphere to form coalitions with civil rights activists, but certainly in the Middle East, the Third World, Africa, and Europe, saying that the civil rights movement is a human rights movement. Malcolm is planning to go towards the United Nations and charge the U United States with crimes and human rights violations against Black people. And so King, by the end, when we think about militarism, materialism, racism, but also in 1966, he spends the whole year in Chicago, he's using the political sword and shield. And he even writes in 1965, beyond the Los Angeles riots, that he's going to use nonviolent civil disobedience as a massive political shield in service of racial and economic justice. So King is this extraordinary figure, and we see it... Um, the, the final speech that King gives, April 3rd, 1968, the, the I may not get there with you speech, in that speech, he's defiant. In that speech, he says that um, in Birmingham, we didn't let any German shepherds or fire hoses turn us around. And he says, tomorrow we're going to march um, and we're not going to let any illegal injunction turn us around. King, right there, that final evening, he's saying that Nonviolent civil disobedience uh, answers to a higher calling. And whether the courts are saying they're going to allow it or not, King, King is not a lawyer. He's declaring <laughs> the, the injunction illegal, right? He's saying we're going to march with these 1,100 striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee for a living wage, no matter what courts tell us, no matter what police tell us. This is Martin Luther King Jr. When you see this, you say, oh my God, this is extraordinary. This is what Malcolm had been 
asking and demanding in 63 when Malcolm X said the March on Washington was a farce on Washington. Malcolm said they should have paralyzed the entire city, that we needed a reckoning. We didn't need uh, to wait. And, and what King, by the late 60s, says is, yes, this is what we're going to use. We're going to use nonviolent political civil disobedience as a political sword and a shield. And he's going to really rock this whole nation because right before his assassination, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, all these magazines are saying King is bringing a violent movement to Washington. He's not. King doesn't curse. King does, he isn't bringing a, 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 a knife or a gun to Washington, D.C. What he's bringing is incredible moral witness and courage, and he never gets to Resurrection City because he's assassinated. So it becomes clear when we read and we study King why the assassination. This is a, this is a man who is representing global political mobilization, and he has the moral power of the entire world, really, behind him. If King had stayed in Washington, D.C. in the summer of 68, the election, this this country would have been transformed. It's also worth noting, especially given what's happening all around us at this moment, that both Malcolm and Martin warned political leaders of the specter of racial uprisings if the nation didn't fully commit to Black citizenship. And I don't think it took a profit to to conclude that at the time, but they were obviously right. And that just seems worth flagging. Absolutely. And Dr. King, such deep empathy, you know, for people who were poor and people who had to resort to um, violence in certain instances. He said that uh, riots were the language of the unheard, and he implored the Johnson administration. He implored law enforcement. He negotiated with big city chiefs in New York and Los Angeles, as did Malcolm. He implored them to understand, let's dig and go to the roots of the rioting and the urban unrest and the political rebellions. King testified before the Kerner Commission right around the same time that uh, predominantly white demonstrators were brutalized at the Pentagon in October of 1967. You know, and there's great interviews or footage at the time where you talk to black people, some of whom were at the Pentagon, but they said that when they saw the law enforcement brutalizing white people at the Pentagon, they said, oh my God, I can't believe this. This is some dangerous work we're doing. They're beating on white folks, right? And so King is at a time of great turmoil, right? By, by a few months after King's death, um, uh, white and Black activists are brutalized in Grant Park in Chicago. And the slogan that white activists and Black activists uh, yell is that the whole world is watching. Right? And that's really one of the most important slogans of the 1960s that we often don't think about because Malcolm and Martin were saying that as well. This idea of witness, certainly James Baldwin talks about being a witness, and Baldwin has been resuscitated in this time period as well. But Martin and Malcolm, this idea of the whole world is watching, what does it mean? We're talking about the gap between the rhetoric of American democracy, the rhetoric of American exceptionalism, and its reality the brutal underside. So as demonstrators were being beaten, they were being hauled into paddy wagons, including um, elderly white women, mothers and grandmothers. By Chicago PD, they were chanting, the whole world is watching. And that's what Malcolm X said and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that what was going on in the United States was immoral. It was politically indefensible. And somebody... Uh, 
uh, would have to answer to what was happening. There had to be a day of reckoning, and they tried to hasten that day of reckoning. One thing I do want to say before we we wrap this up, and it, it's something that came up in a, in a previous episode about Albert Camus, and it's this idea or this belief of Malcolm's that there's there's something tragic but also inspiring in the embrace of struggle as an end in itself, and that even if it doesn't end, it's still beautiful and it's still meaning-making and it's still worth the fight. And as a philosophical orientation that just resonates with me, and I guess, frankly, I, I just admire it. No, absolutely. I think that one of the things that Malcolm and Martin teach us is the joy of struggle, the joy of struggle. Um, they absolutely talk about the bitter side, but they also talk about the beauty of struggle, that there's something unbelievably empowering to um, trying to struggle and resist against oppression. And there's a joy in trying to collectively raise consciousness and to learn from people. I think that Malcolm and Martin were attentive listeners, and one of the reasons they're able to evolve politically in ways that are always more progressive instead of being reactionary, because that's what we all hope, that we become more progressive, is that they listen to people. They listen. They realize that they don't have all the answers. Um, and they had they had a lot more to learn. Their lives are cut woefully short at the age of 39. And I think that the current period that we're here, that we're living under, this Black Lives Matter 2.0, we, all of us, have this generational opportunity really for the first time since 1968. 1968 is a, is, is, is a crossroads where it's between the beloved community and law and order. And we know what happened, not just through the election of, of a specific president, but mass incarceration. We continued to segregate communities. We continued to disinvest in black and brown communities. We set up new institutions and new structures of violence and inequality in the United States. And right now, uh, because of these movements uh, and this, this, this momentous hinge point in history that we find ourselves in, we actually do have this generational opportunity uh, to, to defeat racism, uh, to end white supremacy, to do what James Baldwin called to achieve our country. And that's what Malcolm and Martin were, were, were talking about. Malcolm's OAAU quotes from the Declaration of Independence. King uh, says in his last speech, the greatness of America lies in the right to protest for right. It's very important to understand that these iconic activists did not hate the United States of America. <laughs> they loved American potential, but they hated injustice and inequality. Right, and so we have that generational opportunity um, to build the beloved community um, if we make that choice, and it's a choice that you have to recommit to every day. That's some people have asked me, you know, what? How can we be allies? What can we do in this time? It's it's really a race for marathon runners. It's long distance runners. This is not a sprint. But we say, okay. Next year at this time, we're good. We finally ended it. And you know, with the election of Barack Obama, when people talked about post-racialism, we're a country that likes quick and fast. We like fast fashion, fast food. We don't want, and this is this is slow cooking. This is slow cooking. If we if we want to achieve our country, this is something where your grandchildren and great-grandchildren are still going to be working on it, but you can say in your lifetime, you've achieved great and measurable progress, right? And so we have that generational opportunity. And I, I think my hope 
is that the sword and the shield is a small contribution to that. But in a larger way, we understand and we wrestle with what Malcolm and Martin um, have left us with because they've left us with that that legacy of struggle, that legacy of of uh, being in the moment of struggle and not just saying that you're trying to achieve this triumphant um, victory or this symbolic victory. You know, there is no holiday or 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 end date where we can predict that. You know what, <laughs> January first, twenty thirty, we ended racism. It doesn't Mission work. Accomplished. Like that. Everybody can go Everybody home. Everybody can go home. We can just write about it. So Thanks for playing. So um, I'm hopeful in that sense. And I do believe that there, we all have to find joy and, and, and wellness and, and uh, enlightenment in the context of that struggle. I do also want to say before I, I let you run that there are a lot of libraries of books that have been written about, about these two men and, and, and justly so. But telling their stories alongside each other in the way that you did crystallizes so much about about them and their ideas and their impact and their relevance and it's a terrific achievement and i i encourage everyone who's listening to this to to give it a look and and to read it uh, because it's it's truly outstanding and i learned a lot from it so thank you for writing it thank you sean thank you thank you for engaging with it i mean that's all anybody can ever hope when you write something is that people engage with it uh, seriously and and take the time so i i really appreciate it Professor Peniel Joseph, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining us. As I said at the top, this is the last episode of our series, and my co-host Sagal Samuel and I have enjoyed it so very much. We hope you'll go back and listen to our earlier episodes if you haven't already. We really did try to step back and offer something different in these conversations. We hope you found a little inspiration and maybe even some joy in it. If you'd like to offer feedback about this podcast, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Illing, or you can email me at sean.illing at vox.com. Our producer and editor is Jackson Bierfeldt. The show is edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. And this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, Visit vox.com slash podcast to find more of our shows. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode has come from eBay. You know real when you feel it. And with eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you don't have to wonder. You know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be checked by experts and verified authentic. Maybe it's a designer handbag, sneakers that pop, jewelry that shines as bright as you do. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.